and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, this is this is one of those episodes, this is one of the best episodes of this thing ever. Nicole Panter is here today, one of the original cast members of the Pee Wee Herman show, the, of course, famous manager of the Germs, as featured in Decline of Western Civilization, Part 1. Also a professor. Uh, just, just uh, this is truly, this is one of those episodes. I don't want to oversell it, but I think you're in for uh, a compelling listen. Anyway, more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me, and we can communicate that way. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at left for damien If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by, by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that you enjoy this podcast that we do here well, it's only been once a week this past week, but normally it's about twice a week these days. We got to keep it twice a week to get through all the guests we're recording episodes with. So normally it's twice a, twice a week. Um, you can also support the show though by heading over to uh, the place you're listening to it and subscribing to it and rating it. Uh, thank you to everyone that does give it a five star review on on those places. And you can also head over to Patreon.com/slash Turn It a Punk. And check out footnotes and some of the other fun stuff we do over there. And uh, thank you to everyone that does do that. Really appreciate it. And speaking of support, this thing would not be possible with the kind of loving support of the fine folks at Vans who came aboard, came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, we like what you do. We just don't want you to do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of this thing. And uh, it's been amazing. Check out uh, some of the stuff they've been doing over there with that uh, Channel 66 uh a YouTube channel where they've got great shows with a lot of a lot of former guests of this show are are doing shows over there now and and, and some future guests are, are also doing shows over there now too. So check out some of that fun stuff and thank you Vans for uh believing in this thing. If you're looking for some fun video content, head over to floodmagazine.com and look for the turned out of punk or sorry punk as fuck video series that we did over there a couple years ago and uh yeah had a lot of Fun walking around Los Angeles, heading uh, into different places, meeting punk rock legends, and seeing some cool stuff. Check out those videos. I think you'll enjoy them. And speaking of enjoying things, drop in. I think I think it's coming up tomorrow. There will be a brand new chapter of the fucked up year of the horse. The final chapter comes out tomorrow for your listening pleasure. Uh, so check it out over there at bandcamp.com. Slash fucked up. Does that make sense? I hope it does. You can find it. It's over at our band camp. And uh, that is that. On to today's show. Today on the show, Nicole Panter. Now, Nicole Panter first came into uh, my area of knowledge, I guess, from her appearance in Decline of Western Civilization, whereas I tell her right off the bat in the episode, she comes off as one of the more mature people in that documentary, even though she's just a kid at that time. Uh, but she manages the germs and then ends up doing a very important record label and then winds up. She has just this incredible life. She reached out to the show and yeah, just so lucky that she did because this, these, some of these questions I've been sitting on for years and years and years. Uh, there is 
uh, no end to the stuff that we could talk about um, together on this thing because uh, she's <laughs> really had like dozens of lives, like dozens of lives. It's fascinating. Anyway, I'm I could ramble on forever, but you're gonna hear me ramble on in a minute with her. So I'm not gonna ramble on more than that. Uh, not all the opinions necessarily expressed are opinions that the show agrees with in terms of uh, opinions about certain past guests and things like that. But this is Nicole's story and she tells it and what a story it is. Uh, before we get into the show though, I should also warn that there might be um, some discussions in this episode that if you've been through situations of abuse and violence uh, might be triggering. So just, just bear that in mind. This is a, this is a heavier episode than a lot of the episodes we do on the show and we go to a lot of different places and, and talk about a lot of different subjects on this thing. So, um, yeah, I just wanted everyone to be uh, aware going into it, and uh, that's it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Nicole Panter on Turned Out a Punk. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Well, as I was just kind of telling you off air, I've been been kind of a fan and I've had tons of questions to ask you since I first saw The Decline as as like a young person. Because to me, you always seem like one of the few level-headed people in that documentary the whole way through. And so I've always thought you would have a very unique perspective on on the madness that was, I guess, your life at that time. And I remember everything because I was straight edge before that was a thing. <laughs> well, we're going to get to, I guess, hopefully all of that. But I got to start this off the way they all start off, which is, Nicole, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Or I guess in this case, heard the word. Yes. Um, I was really, well, I grew up in Palm Springs, California, which at that time had maybe 10,000 people living there. Most of them were winter residents and everything would close up for four months from like May to September because it was too hot. It's a super famous resort. Well, even back then, but during the season. And there was a bookstore on the corner of Palm Canyon and Talkwitz. And I used to sit in there for hours and they used to carry cream magazine. And this was probably early 70s. I was fascinated by glam, as were many other, it turns out, people who would be drawn to punk a few years later. So armed with Cream Magazine, I started um, leaving my house and hitchhiking into LA to see shows like David Bowie, um, you know, kind of glammy shows. And I went to Rodney's English Disco because that was, Cream was all up in that stuff. And there was a bunch of kids and we were sort of the ones who were not getting picked up by English rock stars because we were too young, too weird, too something. And I remember I also started reading The Village Voice and there was an article in the Village Voice called All the Young Punks. And that was the first time I ever heard the term for what would become punk. Mm -hmm. And at that point, 
There were, I think you had the guy from the dogs recently, didn't you? Yeah, Lauren from the dogs is on. Absolutely. Okay. Radio Free Hollywood, which they were a part of, and I'm sure he talked about, mm-hmm. was kind of the first punk show, even though they were so-called power pop, right? Yeah. Then there was a, a zine called Backdoor Man that I became friends with those people. And this is pre all the young punks. And then there was Slash, or what would become Slash. And, you know, like weird little shows and weird little venues and the mask where the motels had a rehearsal room and they certainly weren't punk. So it was kind of this big boiling mess of different styles and aesthetics and intentions. And then there was a group of us who were like the weirdest of the weird. And I have to say early punk was a lot of Adams family. There was a big sort of Charles Adams grim humor that evaporated when the boys from the South Bay kind of took things over by force. But it was very Adams family, the first iteration. Um, you know, the weirdos who were my very favorite punk band in LA were showmen. And there was a tongue in cheek sensibility to all of that. And so it all sort of happened at the same time. It became this explosion of weird creativity. And and the thing about punk in LA that was so amazing was that it was a bunch of smarty pants, like people who were just giant brained and curious. And, you know, I was one of them. And I kind of found my tribe. And we just started, you know, doing stuff that was fun and arty. And the weirdos and the screamers were my two favorite bands. Um, and remained my favorite bands throughout that time. Did that answer your question? Sorry. No, believe me, you have brought up a million different points that I want to jump <laughs> off on. So this is perfect. What a way to start. I guess going back to sort of like, you know, being into the glam and going to Rodney's English disco, um, like what were some of the bands that were happening around then? Like obviously Zolar X and I guess the Quick were kind of popping off, but like, you know, I guess bands didn't really play there. Like, were you going to see concerts no. other places? No, it was, well, I like I saw David Bowie like three or four times. That I, It was either the Greek or the Universal. It was an outdoor amphitheater. It was the Diamond Dog Show. Oh, wow. And it turned out that a lot of, and that was a little bit pre-Rodney's. And there was also the Sugar Shack in the Valley. And the important thing about both those clubs is that they were music clubs in that they, you know, Rodney was a DJ, but it was a, they were all ages. Girls who were underage could go there and they did. And, you know, boys who were English rock stars went there and it was all chronicled in cream mm-hmm. and somewhat in backdoor man, I think. Um, but it was, and a lot of the people that I met back then are still friends today. Yeah, it really feels like that from what I've read and, and sort of picked up is like really the 
that's the proto-punk scene. Like all of you kids were the people that would wind up being the first wave of, of true punks when that would hit a couple years later. Yeah, it, that's exactly what it was. And, you know, we were like the garbage kids. We dressed funny and we looked funny and we felt ugly on the inside. So we made it look like that on the outside. And the first part of the scene was really like I had come from a really fucked up violent home and I wasn't surprised when I read my friend Alice Bagg's book to hear that she came from a really fucked up violent home. And Belinda, who was later became famous as a go-go, was also has written about the fucked up violent home she came from. And I realized kind of early on, long after punk was over, I kept my name and phone number in the phone book that's before the internet. And I used to get these calls from little kids late at night. And one of them was called me. I remember it was a little girl with this little tiny voice. And she said, I just want to know what Darby Crash was like. And I said, I bet you're not happy at home, are you? And she said, no, my dad is really scary. And I can't think of anyone who ended up doing what we were doing at that time and place who didn't in some way, wasn't in some way dealing with what now is recognized as trauma. Um, a happy child never became a punk rocker. Mm. Yeah, really also from, you know, picking up different essays that have been written by people that were there and stuff and just talking to yourself right now that it, it filled like a familial void for people like that first wave of punks like it really did feel, you know, close knit, you know, at least from the outside and, and you know, historically distanced that it was like this sort of like close knit group of people drawn together and, and just kind of like creating their own kind of family space almost. Well, and it also was a clique and a tribe, which are things that most of us were denied growing up because we were weirdos. Mm -hmm. You know, we thought differently. We looked at the world differently. We expressed ourselves differently. And you don't do well in, in what we then called junior high school and is now called middle school. And high school, if you love David Bowie and everybody else loves Leonard Skinner. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's 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 also because it is kind of the harder path to hoe almost like, you know, you're not going to be drawn to it, like you're saying, unless there's a there's like a, a powerful reason that's pulling you to this space. And it because of the nature of the music, it gave us an opportunity to act out. And, you know, now that I'm a psychologist years and years down the road, I understand how important acting out trauma is. Uh, which is what we were doing. You know, what were people writing songs about? What were people writing poetry about? How were people expressing themselves? There was a girl I remember who used to paint bruises all over herself and that was her makeup. Um, it's a pretty, you know, it's not surprising that a few years later, a lot of people started doing a lot of hard drugs really seriously. Mm because the bomb of punk rock only went so far. 
before you had to seek another anesthetic. Luckily, that was not my deal. I mean, you know, I, it's kind of a miracle I didn't end up on the streets given the home life I had. So um, punk rock saved me. It gave me an opportunity to figure out that it was okay to be strange. Although I have to say, you know, I still am a weirdo. And in a lot of life situations, it doesn't fly very well. <laughs> However, I, I think punk gave me the resilience to be like, this is who I am. If you don't like it, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like it is something where I guess like, well, look at the stuff you did. Like you, you're running a record label, you're managing a band all as a young person. Like this was a space where you, you were able to kind of create and run, uh, you know, free, you know, even at, at a young age. Yeah. And I think if I hadn't had that opportunity, something bad would have happened. If I'd either not had the courage to step out of my room at midnight and not look back, or if I tried to tried to fit in, you know, which I did, of course I did early on in my life in grammar school and stuff. But, you know, after a while, it's just like, you either let it kill you or it makes you stronger to use that old cliche. The thing I find amazing about punk rock is that it still, you know, has this sort of like beacon thing for young people that are dealing with you know, unpleasant experiences uh, on, on, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily as severe as some of the stuff you're describing, obviously, but like just people that are not fitting in, you know, like I, I interviewed someone the other day or Julian Baker, who's an incredible songwriter and, and she's 25 years old and mm -hmm. she's echoing the same stuff that we're talking about. And it's almost like, three completely different generations of this thing, but this thing is still, you know, whatever it is, this like, you know, four letter word punk is still providing that space for people. Oh my God. I, you have no, well, you do have an idea. I teach at CalArts. I teach screenwriting. I've taught there for 26 years. I got the gig because after punk rock, I ended up in the movie business. Uh, I ended up working on other people's scripts to fix them. And I wrote a book of short stories that got published and got reviewed nationally. And I ended up on NPR being interviewed and the Dean of the department that I ended up starting at CalArts at um, heard the interview and I was listed in the phone book and he called me up and he said, I need a writing teacher for a semester. Do you wanna do it? And I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and I, I had not even ever heard of CalArts, which is so bizarre because the weirdos all went there. And it, I just didn't pay attention to art school. It wasn't in my vocabulary. Had I known about art schools, maybe punk wouldn't have been a thing for me, you know? Mm. Or maybe the two would have combined. But so I was invited to teach there and I decided to teach a zine class. I was going to teach writing through zining. That's and awesome. It was amazing. And the class was called FTW DIY, which pissed off so many of the establishment people at CalArts, which is supposedly a la 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 free hippie school. But 
it's full of conforming little nonconformists running it sometimes. It was back then. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure now because I just don't pay attention to the politics anymore. But um, I decided to teach the zine class and we were gonna do our own zines. And I'd never, I was really shy back then too. Even during punk, I was really shy. And I remember I went into the ladies room and I like totally nervous barfed before the class. And I go into the first class and there are 60 people in a class that I thought I would be lucky if 15 people showed up. So this is 1995. And I go through what I'm gonna teach the class and what we're gonna do and how we're gonna run the class and everybody's gonna do individual zines and we're gonna do group zines. And I get to the end of my spiel and I say, does anyone have any questions? And there's a long silence and some kid sitting in the back goes, can you tell us what Darby Crash was really like? (laughs) And I thought, oh, fuck, that's why there's all these people here. How in the hell could they know about that thing that happened 20 years ago at that point? Because I hadn't been, you know, paying attention. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been around 18 year olds. I'd been working in the movie business and I had not been paying attention. And even now those kids know who I am. I don't even talk about it and they know who I am. They know my past. So it's, and CalArts is, the way I describe it is it's the school where Every village in the United States sent their weirdest child to. So it makes perfect sense that all those kids know about punk rock and the history of it and my part in it. Um, It's pretty great though. I mean, I love, love, love my students. Um, They have gotten me through some really hard times and they are like we were big brains who want to know everything. So it's super cool. Um, Penn Ward, who do you know Adventure Time? Oh, I've got three kids, so I'm very familiar with uh, with uh, Adventure Time. Absolutely. Okay, so the Penn wrote. Penn took my class for four years and wrote the beginnings of the series in my class. Um, Ari Aster, who did um, Midsummer and Hereditary, was my student at a different school for four years. So, you know, it trickles down through me. Yeah. Um, in, into the mainstream, and and those kids are interested in all this stuff. It's really, I mean, it never ceases to astound me because my friend Ron Spencer, who was there then we we will we'll go out and have coffee and he'll just look at me and say can you believe people still know about this well it, it's funny because like you bring up the germs right you know right there and and this year two members of the germs are probably going to go in the rock and roll hall of fame you know pat's going to go in with the foo fighters and blinda's going to go in with the go-go's and it's it's like like you're saying like where did this go like where did this trickle down to it's like everywhere like it's amazing to think of like this group of, you know, how many of you were in the mask together? Like there's more, I've been down to that basement. Not very many people could fit, uh, you know, and 
how many of those people went out influenced all aspects of popular culture it is pretty weird isn't it oh it's amazing it's definitely like it's fascinating like it just the the perpetual kind of nature this this kind of has for people uh, that do interesting things later in their life of just being a key place for them early on. Um, one of the things you did bring up there is this idea that this is people dealing with trauma and the unfortunate other aspect of that is that, you know, that also was a place that a lot of people preyed on people dealing with trauma, you know, and specifically talking about Ronnie's English disco and someone like Kim Fowley, you know, someone who's in recent years, it's become much more well-known kind of like, the the horrible stuff that was kind of going on behind the scenes there like it seems like it was also an era that was ripe for people to try and prey on young people well i have to tell you it was the 70s and it was just after the 60s right where mm. anything went and it, it you know there were there I don't know if you've heard the sad story of Donnie Rose. Um, he was a kid who ran away from Riverside at 14. He showed up on my doorstep and said, hi, I'm Donnie Rose, I'm 14. And I just ran away from Riverside. And I'm like, dude, what? You know, and that kid became a magnet for the self-avowed, self-declared, totally out of the closet. There were a couple of pedophiles. They called themselves that in the scene. Mm -hmm. You know, I, God, I've never spoken about this publicly, but an older road manager guy for a very famous band asked me out and I went out with him and I ended up having sex with him that I really didn't want to have. And I kept saying I didn't want to, but it's really hard to explain that. I, this is gonna get me in trouble. It was the way things were then. Yeah, I, well, first of all, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Well, you know, it's not, I have to tell you, it's not something that keeps me up at night. It's not something that gave me a startled response. It not, it's not something that gave me avoidance. It was just like, oh, that guy's an asshole, you know, because that's what the zeitgeist was then, right? Mm -hmm. well, so, I, sorry, go on. No, I was, I was just going to say, well, I guess that's why it took so long for people to kind of really understand what a lot of these people were doing, you know, and really kind of like, like how many of these people have been celebrated for years and only in the last sort of, you know, five to 10 years, people have been like, actually that person was, was not a great human being. And what they were doing was, was abuse. Except in the context of the time, mm -hmm. the context of the time did not call it that, you know, we evolve and we know better. And we know now that 14 year old girls are not really capable of making the decision as to whether they should be having sex with a 30 year old man or not. But you have to understand how weirdly, I don't wanna say open because that sounds like a positive word, just how different things were. Well, it was almost like it celebrated in the pop culture too, right? Like it was, yeah. it was romanticized 
um, by by music press even. Yeah, it was. I mean, Rodney's was no secret. It wasn't like an underground club that you had to know a magic password to get into. Everybody knew what was going on there. Or even like I, I look at a movie like Almost Famous, you know, and that's not even that long ago now. And you look at that film and then when you start actually thinking about what's happening and what that film is kind of kind of glamorizing, you're like, well, this isn't this isn't that great. Yeah. It was very, I mean, first of all, the 60s followed a period, a long period of repression in this country, sexual repression and things. And I was very young during the 60s. I was born in 55. So I remember, though, it was like this kind of time of self-discovery that I was too young to enjoy, but not too young to be very aware of because I was so thirsty to get out of that shitty little famous town I grew up in, mm. you know? And um, what you also have to realize is that the abuse that was taking place in the house that I grew up in, my family was wealthy. Um, my father, who was really my stepfather, but they didn't think it was my business to let me know because my mother had married him when I was very young, invented the Philadelphia cheesesteak sandwich. His name was Pat, the king of steaks. Like from Pat's Pat's? Yes, Pat Oliveri. That's my maiden name. Holy. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I knew that was your maiden name, but I never made the connection to, to like, that's that's kind of an institution, right? Pat and Gino's. Um, there was no Geno's when I was a little kid. <laughs> definitely the king of steaks then. I have to tell you, it was just the one place. And so they were very wealthy. I went to really good Quaker schools. My mother had me when she was a teenager. And then she married Pat when she was still a teenager. She left my real father, who I don't know and have never met because they chose to hold that information away from me and pretend that I was Pat's show, but he was a very violent and abusive man. And in the sixties, when I was growing up in that house, I was a child who continually had black eyes and broken bones and no one intervened. There wasn't a hospital visit that ended up with the cops coming to my house. And I'm not the only one. That's That was the way things were done then. And I'm not saying it's right. I mean, I wish someone had intervened, but no one ever did. And I wasn't, I'm not the only one who grew up in a house like that and didn't have someone come to the rescue. Yeah. Well, it's like you're saying, that's the, that's that changing sensibilities that we have now and like the changing, you know, cultural mores or just like you know it sounds like very very uh you know it sounds like i'm minimizing it to say cultural mores because it's something very serious but like it just feels like you're saying this is something that unfortunately was a lot more common at other times and and the the non-intervention thing was just the way it was people it was really patriarchal hmm. it was his household and i was you know his chattel and if that's the way, and I was considered a difficult child because it was smart and asked questions, 
And if that's the way he chose to deal with me, that was considered his business. You know, we look at that now and think that's fucking nuts. Yeah. You had people yeah. in jail for that. Yeah. Rightfully so too. Cause like you're, you're a child, like you're like not, yeah. not as acceptable at any age, but to a child. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the fact that I ended up late in life going back to school because I didn't have a grand, giant student loan, and I guess I thought I needed one, um, <laughs> to, to study psychology and eventually get my doctorate has a lot to do with that household that I grew up in and trying to sort things out. Um, you know, and, and so it, it's, things were just different. And I'm glad that that has changed, you know, that and the sexual predatory thing has really evolved and we don't let people get away with it now. It's not their God-given right to beat the shit out of a kid every day and humiliate them and torture them. And it's not the God-given right of a Kim Fowley to do horrible things to the girls he's already exploiting financially. So, you know, yeah, no, 100%. So the world is a little bit better in that way. Uh, you know, like another thing that, you know, I think keeps coming up on this show, talking to people coming out of that scene is sort of the, the chilling effect of, of the Manson family and the Manson family murders and kind of that ending the sixties and ushering this period of, of kind of like a chilling effect and then sort of like the wave of people getting into glam and then ultimately punk or the kids that kind of grew up during that period finally getting free. Like, I just wondered what your memories were of that time. And cause you're very close to it while it's happening and sort of, you know, Manson, I guess, uh, hysteria that was kind of happening. Okay, so we lived in Palm Springs and we also had a ranch, a horse ranch in Chatsworth, California. And my parents used to buy horses from George Spawn. Oh, wow. And I remember that they went up there one day and they were like, well, that's weird because George Spawn was blind and in a wheelchair I believe and he used to have this kind of nurse kind of lady wheeling him around and she was older and very severe and I forget what her name was and my parents were like well that's so strange that she's gone and those hippies are there so wow yeah. Yeah. Um, very close very close, you know, and, and kind of, you know, there, there's been a lot of stuff like that. But I remember the day that the news of those murders broke. I was in the swimming pool in the house in Palm Springs. And I think some of the backwash of that years later, the reverberation of that for me was, well, hippies were hypocrites because look what happened. Love and peace was a con job. Mm -hmm. I also remember the first time I ever saw hippies was we were driving, we were in Los Angeles and we were driving down Sunset. And my stepfather, who was a total asshole, 
was honking the horn and these two girls in like tiny little skirts turned around and flashed a peace sign at him and said, love and peace to you too. And his response, of course, was go fuck yourselves. So, you know, it's like snapshots like that. Um, But flash forward to 1976, 77, and it's like the hippies were a con. It wasn't love and peace. They murdered people. You know, it was not a nuanced reaction, but I definitely remember having that thought. Well, definitely, it seems like it changed the way people looked at youth culture, you know, for for a while. Like, um, it's funny, I interviewed Don Bowles, like, for, for a completely separate thing. And he uh-huh. said the first first time he came to L.A., him and Frank discussion from the feeders hitchhiked in 74 to go and hang out with the Manson girls. And uh, it was just after, I guess, Gerald Ford assassination attempt. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, like, yeah, that was like their big thing was coming up and, and hanging out. Like, it's amazing how much of a, a hangover Manson had. Like, look at the, all the black flag art and stuff later on or Sonic Youth referencing it even. Like, it just seems like that the kids that grew up during that time, like that was the that was the boogeyman. Rightfully. Well, especially if you grew up in Southern California, because the boogeyman was in your backyard. Yeah, definitely. You know, I can't imagine that a kid in Iowa had thought about that even twice, you know, but California, it was pretty close to home. I guess going back to Rodney's English disco, did you ever see the band, the Imperial Dogs play? I saw the Imperial Dogs play, but didn't they play at Radio Free Hollywood? They might have done Radio Free Hollywood too. Like they, but I know they played. There's definitely photos. They're one of the few bands that actually ever played at Rodney's, at like a show show. Uh huh. See, yeah. I don't remember live music at Rodney's. That's the, and I, I, I definitely when Jane from the Go-Go's was on, she's like, "Yeah, that never happened." And I'm like, "I know, but I swear, there's photos from this one time. I guess they're like the only band, but they just seem like." They're another band that was just kind of bubbling up at that time. I guess they wrote This Ain't the Summer of Love, once again, and, you know, going back to Manson, but ultimately Bluish or Cult, uh, I guess, takes the name from them or, or licenses the name from them and a couple of the lyrics into a song. Don Waller was in that band, wasn't he? Yeah, he was the vocalist. Okay, so he was the Backdoor Man. He wrote for Backdoor Man. He was one of the founders of Backdoor Man. Okay, yeah, that makes sense then, Totally. And that scene seems like it was definitely a, uh, you know, like that was the direct precursor to something like Slash. Totally, it was. In fact, I hope you talked to Greg Turner, who was... Oh, definitely, from Vom and, and Angry Simone's 100%. I love to. And the backdoor man, backdoor man, too. I mean, I've known Greg. Greg is my neighbor here in Santa Fe. It's one of the, he's one of the reasons I'm here, actually. He's a close, close friend for 45 years now. Um you know, he was a writer for Backdoor Man, and um, he was also in Bomb and Angry Samoans, and he's a math professor. <laughs> I think he might have just retired. Um, we're waiting for his vaccines to do their job before we hang out. Oh, well, I'm glad he's got the shots now, because... Um... Yeah, no, I think I think that's Vom is a band that oh obviously I definitely want to talk to you about this because you know you've done that seven inch, which is an incredible seven inch. Took me forever to track down a copy. 
but it's just amazing when you look at that band and how everyone in that band is is like a, a music writer or winds up doing something else kind of cool in music. Like it just feels like that's one of the bands that I don't know, just it's, it's so fascinating that I'm surprised they don't come up more. Oh my God, they were such outcasts, mainly because Richard Meltzer is such a turd. Um, yeah. Pardon me if I'm not supposed to say that, but Richard Meltzer was much older than everyone else. He was one of those guys we were talking about who, you know, was hanging out with a bunch of kids, I guess. Yeah. And um, White Noise put that record out. White Noise was Ron Spencer and I, and the secret, um, the great and mighty Oz behind White Noise was a man named Bob Merlis who ran Warner Brother Records. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he put our records in line at the pressing plant after, you know, some big ticket item. So that's how we got our records out. And the next one we did was the Avengers um, 33 and a third EP. Uh, the American and me. And Steve Jones produces that, right? I believe. Yes, he did. Um, and although I'm now really good friends with Danny and Penelope, it was such a fucking nightmare to put that record out. They acted like we were some daddy warbucks trying to fuck them over. And we were just like, kids who were like let's have a record company yeah <laughs> and uncle bob merlis will do that will pick up the pressing costs for us on an expense account at warner brothers oh that's amazing so how did yeah. the you know vom is a band that also like i think when the stern brothers were on from youth brigade i think even keith morris when he was on like they were all very dismissive when i brought him up like it feels like like you were saying they were outcasts. Like they were not liked by, I guess, the wave of people that would be kind of the punks. A, well, a lot. Having seen Vom in action in the studio, and I have to say it was Ron and Greg Turner whose idea it was to do a record with them, not mine. <laughs> um, Richard Meltzer seemed to have a disdain for punk and punks. So it was like an older guy who it was his I've got I'm on the inside saying fuck you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and and so it felt like posy, you know, not to use a word that came up years later, it felt like Richard was it was a pose. It was the next thing. It was the next way he was going to try to get one over on. I mean, nothing that guy does feel sincere, frankly. You know, and his heyday had passed maybe 15, 10 years earlier than that. Seven, 10 years earlier. Um, during the early 70s when he was a critic or he was a writer for cream you know my feeling about him is that and i got to hang out with lester bangs in new york and i loved that guy and i always felt he was really sincere and fucked up 
and dear, and it wasn't a pose. And I always felt Richard Steele was a pose. And I think that's why people who were there are dismissive. You know, you bring up Lester Bangs there, and I kind of get the same sense, like, obviously, you don't hear as many negative stories about, about Lester Bangs, but at the same time, like, it feels like those guys were like a generation, like removed from it. So they kind of got it when it first happened, but like the next wave, when it was the younger kids coming in and taking the ball and running with it, neither one of them seemed to really kind of understand it. This is, yes. And the sense about Volm, if you listen to those lyrics and shit, it just sounds like they're making fun of punk. Like they're burlesquing it. They're not, it's not real punk. It's, it's just mm, ill-intentioned teasing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I totally pick up on that now. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah. You know, another person that kind of, yeah, it's kind of gotten a, a weird rap on this show is Bob Biggs. And, you know, I think Penelope, when she was on, just described him as just being an asshole several times and, and, and a straight up bad person. And it just seems like as time has gone on, he's, been kind of like portrayed more and more as being not necessarily the, the, the best person in that scene. Well, you know, I'm going to be the dissenter on that one. Mm -hmm. I really liked Bob. Um, you know, both Bob and Penelope, they were married. Yeah. They were older substantially than the rest of us. That was weird. Um, they had a really contentious marriage. And I guess I'm not surprised that she doesn't say good things about him, but nobody was lining up to give the germs $5,000 to go into gold star studio, <laughs> you know, and Bob was a visionary because Bob was like, I've got this money. And we were the first album that slash did. And that was because Bob ponied up the dough. And he didn't interfere in the creative process. He was around in the studio and he was a weirdo. You know, he looked like a football jock, but he was a stone cold weirdo. Um, his first wife was Cookie Mueller. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how he ended up coming to LA. And there was a perception of him as being someone who bought his way in. But the truth of it is, he could have given that money to any fucking band on the scene. And he didn't. He gave it to the Germs, who were not the best band in Los Angeles. Uh, by any means, they were, you know, they had a really good guitar player, but it was too early for a lot of people to recognize that. Mm -hmm. And Darby Crash was a genius at expressing the pain of being Darby Crash, of being Jan Paul Bean. And that resonated with a lot of kids who were also in pain. You know, and this is years later, you know, Sunday morning quarterbacking. But you never went to a germ show and saw a professional outfit that played an hour's worth of songs from beginning to end. You went and you saw someone who was getting progressively fucked up on stage. 
you know, you went to see a train wreck. They weren't the most musically accomplished, but they really did, through Darby's lyrics, express the feelings that a lot of those kids were feeling about themselves, about the world. You know, Lorna learned the songs days before a show by Pat showing her the fingering. It wasn't like she was a bass player, really. They went through a bunch of drummers and Don just happened to be the last drummer. Pat, if you could hear the guitar through the cheap amplification systems, you would get that, oh, this this guy's good. Mm -hmm. This guy knows what he's doing. His mom was an opera singer. He grew up in a musical home. So, you know, it, 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 and, and I don't know, there are people who've said the same thing about Penelope. I have, you know, really mixed feelings. Sometimes she's nice to me when I see her, sometimes she's not. But nobody really loved either of those two people, if I might say that. I mean, I know she's going to punch me in the face next time I see her. She's the only person I've had a fist fight with in my life. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But, But, you know, it's like, I think that Bob was a visionary and he was always nice to me. He hired me to be Slash's very first employee, Slash Records. And I sat there at a desk and kind of was like, now what? (laughs) And I was like, you know, this is boring. I don't want to do this. So I quit. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. And when Darby died, I went to him and was like, dude, please get him a headstone, pay for the funeral. And he did. And then years later, when I found out that the mother had not taken the money for the headstone and gotten a fucking headstone, I went to Biggs and was like, can you please do something? And he bought Darby a headstone. Yeah. You know, so I think he was a good guy. I think like a lot of adults, they were in their 30s. They were way older than the rest of us. It would be easy to see either of them as being exploitive if you looked at it that way. I found like that's one of the things I love about doing the show is the fact that you kind of get, like you realize that these people are people, you know, and I, and I yeah. put yourself in this category too, where, you know, like so much of this is you're presented you know, historical kind of record of this person and their achievements or their, their moments in documentaries or things they've written. And, and, you know, you don't really get the full perspective on this person being like a 360 degree human being that has, you know, good sides and bad sides. Like another person like El Duce, the wild perspectives on El Duce that have come up on this show never cease to amaze me. Like, it seems like for one person, he was a, a nightmare and a terrible you know, threat and to other people, he was someone that was very misunderstood and could be a really good person. 
You know, people like that, I have to say, he came a little bit later and I was only vaguely hanging out. I'd see him at zero openings and I would just see him and go to the farthest place in the room. Because mm -hmm. I just didn't want to deal. You know, I never saw him sober. Yeah. And I just, you know, it, it's, it was unpleasant to me. And I certainly wasn't a mentors fan. I was kind of over it by then. Uh, I renounced punk in 1980 when on the same day, my husband at the time and I went to uh, the Sherman Oaks Galleria because I had to buy something and some little kids started screaming at us, your ugly punk rock sucks. And then later that night at the market, I think it was a market basket. It's now a fancy grocery store on Franklin and Bronson. We went to do our grocery shopping at two in the morning as we would were want to do. And these brand new shiny punks started screaming at us, posers, posers. And I looked at my husband and I was like, you know what, I'm done. I don't blame you. <laughs> then we moved on to the Pee Wee show. Oh, well, I want to, believe me, I, I hopefully we get there because honestly, this has been incredible. And Nicole, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Um, one of the things you brought up there about like, why was it the germs? And I think Darby and is almost an archetype and the band's almost an archetype for this thing in punk, which is this sort of quest for authenticity, you know, and like the real experience. And you still see it like, you know, are you familiar with little peep at all that, that artist, he passed away a couple of years ago? No, I'm sorry. I'm focused on not hip. No, don't, do not worry at all. Like I, I'm not very familiar with him myself. But I think the thing that struck me about him is just how similar he seemed to, to Darby, where, like you're saying, it's not like he's, uh, you know, throwing out these profound realizations necessarily about the world, but it's more just expressing that internal pain and letting you in as, as a listener. Yeah. Yeah, it's a powerful, powerful thing. But okay, so I didn't finish the thought about Biggs, you know, the thing about that is the germs record has never been out of print since it was first issued that day. Yeah. That was a visionary move, signing them and putting that record out because it is held up. It has withstood the test of time. And who, who could have seen that? If you'd asked me, I would have said, no, you know, this is $5,000 that's going to be, you know, used and gone. And in a year, no one's going to know this record. But then again, I didn't think anyone was going to know anything about punk. I mean, like Ron says, we were just having fun and acting out our trauma. So Bob Biggs, no, I'm, I'm a fan. He was nice to me. Um, he was not a bad person that I knew of. Um, in my experience, he was always a stand-up guy. And you go through that label and it's just unbelievable the stuff that's put out. Like it's not, not like Slash was putting out a deluge of records, not like Mystic Records or something. It's, mm -hmm. but everything they put out from, 
you know, dream syndicate to the misfits, to the gun club, to, you know, obviously the germs and acts and all that, but like all these records are records that have by right stayed in print since they were put out because they are so important to the genre. Yeah. I mean, the thing was, is where, from where Biggs was standing, it is surprising to me because the germs couldn't even get through a show on stage the idea that they could produce something in the studio that would be usable was a huge leap. Yeah. Were, were you managing them when they did the forming seven inch? No, they had yeah, just the, finished it. Because the leap from that to the first slash seven inch is just ridiculous. Yeah. It's like a new band. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. And um, it's so yeah. I I'm I haven't really heard a lot of bad things about Bob Biggs, personally. But no one would say that to me. Um, I guess going on to the to the Germs record, like where did that circle logo and the idea for you doing that for the cover? Because you did the cover art, right? I did With the cover art, but the blue circle on black was Darby's. Darby used to talk, and this was, um, this is a sensitive point. He used to talk about, well, the fascists were so successful, got as far as they did because they had good symbols. They knew how to present a symbol. And so he had his blue circle on black. Um, he, he did armbands. Somebody did armbands that were that. And that was Darby's symbol. And Big said to me and Darby, I have an idea for the cover. I want to do the germs in jelly beans and rotting meat. I want to spell it out. And I was like, uh. And Darby was, when we were alone, was like, Nicole, what do you think about that? That sounds okay, right? And I'm like, no, no, it sounds horrible. I said, I think it should be something unexpected like a Blue Note or Pablo Jazz release. And I also was the one who came up with GI because when I first met the germs, and we were talking about me managing them. And it was pretty much because I was organized and together, I think. Um, Darby said, we need a manager because we can't get a gig because no club owners will let us play because our fans tear up their stuff, tear up their clubs. And I said, well, play under a different name. Play under GI for Germs Incognito. That way... It's like an inside joke. And he was like, oh my God, that's great. So then when this was maybe a year or so later, Biggs said the thing about the jelly beans and rotten meat. And I think someone said, oh, like Frank Zappa. And I was like, no, we're gonna do something unexpected because I don't know who did the forming art but that was before my time. Mm. And so I 
scribbled it out. I said, there's going to be a black background with a big blue circle, little letters at the top, germs GI. It's going to be what people don't expect us to do. And voila, that was it. And um, there are some sort of Johnny-come-latelys who really have um, objections to this idea that Darby didn't design the album cover. And, um, you know, I've never said that I designed the blue circle and the black that was existent before I came on board. But I did design that album cover. And, you know, if you know anything about me, it rings true. So that's kind of controversial with some people who think they know better. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm really proud of. It's been in a couple of design books as a classic. Oh, absolutely. It, it influenced my band. Like our records are very much laid out the same way with fucked up on one side and then the album title on the other um, because of the germs GI record. Yeah. Like it is, it's that, that important to us. And the, the other thing that influenced me was, um, Oh God, they're my friends now too. They did the Bukowski books that with all those beautiful covers, those letterpress covers, um, Black Sparrow books. Okay. Yeah. And Barbara Martin, the wife of John Martin, the publisher, who later became my friends through my late partner, Bill Daly, who was a rare book dealer. Um, I got to tell Barbara Martin years later that her work really influenced that particular bit of culture. It's that trickle down that you're talking about, you know, and still, yeah. it still trickles down. Exactly. It does. Uh, going back to the uh, to recording of um, of GI, uh, I've read in in like really kind of like different opinions about you know how that recording session was like. What was your some of your memories of of that session? Pat Burnett, the engineer who came with the studio, and I don't I don't remember if um, I don't think it was Gold Star. I think I misspoke. I think we did cruising at Gold Star. But yeah. they paid for a decent studio and I'm, it's slipping my mind because I'm old. Um, but Pat Burnett, who was from a famous music family, was the engineer, the in-house engineer at the $5,000 studio that we were doing that in. Joan was in not good shape when, and oh, it's, it. okay, so when, Biggs approached us and said, I wanna pay for you to do a record, Darby said, I want Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders to produce our album. <laughs> and he was really being sincere. And, I, you know, knowing now what I know, I think he maybe had a big crush on Mark Lindsay, mm -hmm. as I had 10 years earlier when I was a little kid. Um, and I don't know if Biggs actually got a hold of him or just claimed to have gotten a hold of him, but he said, well, Mark Lindsay wants $10,000 to do this job and I can't afford it. And I said to Darby, we need someone famous. You're right, because that will help get us more attention. And we knew Joan and she was famous. Mm -hmm. So we asked Joan to produce it and she'd never produced anything. And 
you know, she was our friend. She lived uh, across the street from the Whiskey A Go Go, and we used to go there and hang out between different sets at the Whiskey. And she was, we liked her. She was, you know, a real rocker chick. She was the real deal. And she was going through some hard times with drugs. And um, we asked her to do it. And I think Biggs paid her $1,000 or something like that. But she really, it was Pat Burnett who really, really did the work on that record. He knew what he was doing. He knew how it should sound. And I have no idea if that guy's still alive. I've never heard anything about him since then. But that's the guy who made that record sound the way it did. He's weirdly come up on the show a couple times and we kind of looked into it, but like, yeah, he's got, you know, he did um, a gun club record, did a legal weapon record, but not like a ton of credits. But I guess with, with a band like the germs, it's almost like unproducible, even under the best case scenario, you almost need just like an incredible engineer. I would imagine just to capture what they're doing and try and make it, you know, come across so it can be made sense of during the mix. Well, and I think that's what he did. I mean, I had no idea that he did other punk records, but um, if, if Biggs used the same studio, I'm sure that that's uh, Pat Burnett was the in-house engineer. Could it be Quad Tech Studios? Yes, Quad Tech. Thank you. I found the notes. Sorry, I've got like a million scraps of paper in front of me. I'm sorry. That's okay. Yeah, it, that's who it was. And... Um, you know, he deserves the recognition for it because it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's yeah. Something to be proud of. And I have to tell you, I didn't think that they were capable of that. Yeah, no, it definitely. Well, that's the it's the defining record. You know, like that record is there's a reason it's never gone into print. There's a reason like people still fiend for it. And it's just I don't like you're saying it's not quantifiable in sort of traditional metrics of what makes a, a quote unquote good band or like a, you know, it, it's just, there's something else about it, but it's almost like they're the first of, of a different style of, of artists. Like it's almost like germs are like the original emo band where they're letting you in and kind of like breaking down that fourth wall in a completely different way than even someone like Lou Reed is. Yeah. But threatening to, but feeling really threatening to your safety at the same time, mm. which is funny because they were just little kids, you know. Well, that's something I've really come across when I've read things like in different books that you've talked about. Like, it just feels like Darby's almost, you know, I guess Sid Vicious is first, but he was so repulsive ultimately as a person that. Darby's really the first where he becomes an icon. Like it almost, like you're saying, he's just a kid, but people deify him in such a way. It seems like very early on that's happening. Well, I, not, not in real time in real life. It wasn't, I mean, he was kind of considered a pest and they were considered not serious. And when Biggs made the germs, his first album release, there was a big eye roll among people who were quote unquote more professional. You know, I'm sure yeah. X was like probably cursing under their breath about it. 
because those were people who took their career seriously. And Darby was always talking about, I don't want people to think we want to be rock stars like X. Mm. I mean, he used to say that a lot. <laughs> um, like it was a bad thing because it was punk rock. Well, and if you bring that up and it's really interesting because I actually have that written down. It, like there's that incident where Pat punched Billy Zoom in the face on stage uh, at an X show too, that I think is described in, in, I think the germs book somewhere. And also like when you watch decline, like there couldn't be two diametrically more opposed bands. It seems like where X is talking about playing the whiskey and getting sent flowers and the germs are talking about being banned from every venue. Like it just feels like almost the, that's the dichotomy of what punk was at the time. These bands that were very good players and very professional. And then these bands that were just very real. Well, I have to say the real bands were not very professional. <laughs> the real punk, real punk bands were not yeah. very professional. Although, you know, that said, again, I'll go back to my very favorite punk band in Los Angeles was the Weirdos. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. On his worst night, John Denny was as charismatic as a Frank Sinatra or an Elvis Presley from earlier generations. And it is beyond me why that band didn't, weren't known into the future the way a lot of lesser bands were. Yeah, it's very bizarre because they're a band, like you listen to those, those records and those records obviously still hold up, but um, they're not celebrated in the same way that we, you know, in the same way that X is celebrated or the germs are celebrated or, you know, obviously the bands that would come a little bit later too. It just feels like, but from talking to everyone that was around, they were the best set of all of them. They were amazing. And I think the thing, the, the differentiation is that they were not in the decline. There's not film of them. Mm -hmm from that time. And I've seen them relatively recently and they've still got it. Oh, another band you hear that about is the plugs too. And the zero. Oh, God, yes, they were. Yes, 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 absolutely. You know, Tito played my brother on stage in the Pee Wee show. We played <laughs> Pee Wee's next door neighbors and obviously Tito LaRiva and I could not be more different. That's um, awesome. <laughs> Um, I, you know, once again, I feel like I've kept you for a very long time and Nicole, I, I will not punish you forever because as I say, I could, would you come back at some point down the line for a part two? Totally. Because I want to also talk to you about the stuff I'm doing now, which is, um, as a psychologist, I'm, um, studying entheogenic drugs in the treatment of, which is psilocybin. Mm-hmm and um, other drugs, and also ketamine, which I have personal experience with therapeutically, um, as um, possible interventions, it sounds boring the way I'm saying it now, for anxiety, PTSD, and depression. There's some really interesting stuff because the part B of punk is many of us were lifelong chronic depressives. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And yeah. um, when I started seeing patients at the free clinic, I, I, I'm not doing it now because of COVID. Um, 
And I was seeing people in my own personal experience with antidepressants was really horrible. I mean, it was potentially life ruining. And I was talking to patients who were like, you know, had gained 80 pounds and were even more depressed. And I started reading a lot about these other things. And I did my doctorate a few years ago on this. So there's lots of good news for us old punks. Oh my gosh, do I want to talk about this with you? Because I'm, <laughs> I very much was, uh, you know, I'm someone that was on, I was straight edge, um, then got on anti-anxiety pills and really just suffered through that for about 10 years of just in not connecting and then found cannabis as a uh, treatment for anxiety. And then through that, it's now started looking at other therapies um, and just kind of, you know, trying to understand the mind, <laughs> you know, and just trying to understand my brain. And instead of fighting my brain chemistry, finding natural ways to work with it and, and use what is already in my brain and, you know, work through it. And yeah, so I'm, I'm obviously very, <laughs> this is another place I love to go and talk about. So yeah, absolutely. Like, I think, like you said, there's a lot of people involved in this scene that are working through trauma, you know, like I, I can't count the number of friends I have that were straight edge that were also on anti-anxiety pills because they were dealing with trauma and didn't want to necessarily self-medicate. And because we have been presented these drugs in the same way that were presented real harmful drugs, um, it, it just, you know, it seems like the messaging has gotten confused. Uh, well, and, and, you know, follow the money, big pharma and all of that. But, uh, you know, I think at the root of things with anxiety, with depression, with PTSD, there is a fundamental existential crisis that's not being dealt with or addressed. With those other drugs, we're addressing the symptoms, but not the cause. Um, my, the love of my life was run over and killed near our house three years ago. I'm so sorry. And it, it's been a weird, horrible, horrible trip. Um, but one of the things I did because I was deeply depressed was I did uh, the month long injectable ketamine protocol with a therapist and a psychiatrist. And um, it's been pretty life-changing. I mean, I still have this giant loss, but I'm a lot higher functioning and the death question also, I'm 65. You know, punk was a, my punk was a high mortality subculture. Mm -hmm. Death has been lurking around for a really long time, and it's a scary thing. And these drugs kind of help us wrap our arms around that a little bit easier. You know, I mean, there's a lot of thought about anxiety being the result of faulty terror management, and terror management is the idea that we have the consciousness that we're going to die, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's terror management theory, which is everything we do is to put that awareness far out of our consciousness, but nothing works. So anxiety really seems inescapable. Um, and 
entheogenic, psychedelic drugs, which thank God we're working really hard now to be able to use those legitimately and legally in therapeutic contexts. Um, so these drugs address the existential part of that. And that's why they're so amazing. And that's why the numbers are so good on them. Um, but anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm making it boring. By no, you're not at all. I find this hundred percent. And you know, the, that's one thing that unfortunately I don't think has changed about punk rock is that it sadly is still a place that has, uh, you know, uh, maybe not as high, but still has a high mortality rate. And I recently lost two really close friends and use psilocybin to kind of help work through it. And I found, you know, other, other times where I've tried to deal with grief in other ways, um, I find it lingered a lot more and obviously it still lingers, but I mean, just using the psilocybin and, and just trying to, you know, we're not quite advanced here in Canada yet to have it legitimized in the medical system, but trying to use stuff that I had read to, to deal with it and meditate and things like that. And I really did feel it helped in a, di a completely different way than anything else that helped me before. Well, and, and I think that's because it helps with the existential piece and mm -hmm. it does open up our brains to the idea. And, you know, when Bill was killed, before Bill was killed, I did not think there was anything beyond this. And I pretty much am married to a ghost who's a room and a half away at all times now. Um, the veil is very thin. And psychedelics are kind of an exclamation point at the end of that sentence. Oh, yeah. When, we, when we're done this conversation, I'll tell you about my uh, DMT experience, which completely changed the way I look at any sort of spiritual connection in this world. Like, it definitely... Oh, cool opened me up to a whole new way of thinking. Um, but I, I will not bore you that with you that yet. Um, can I ask you a few more questions before we, we go? Absolutely, yeah. I feel like we just scratched the surface. Oh my gosh, yeah. I still have a million more questions to get to. One thing I really wanted to to talk to you about, though, going back to that GI record, is the the kind of like the fight you put up as a manager and just you know the fact that you got these guys a publishing deal which you look at so many of these punks and just how many of them lost their catalog really early on. And I just think that was so admirable as a manager to kind of be like, no, this is something we we're fighting for and setting up that company. Well, nobody was interested in owning our, our publishing rights. There was a great little company called Bug Music that a lot that was available to us and you could do everything you needed to do but to have a publishing company, but it would be owned by you and self-administered. Okay, yeah. And the Bug Brothers, there were two of them, Dan and somebody, and their name was Bourgois, Bourgois or something like that. It Nobody was interested in publishing the germ stuff. We had to do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think it's paid. I've never gotten a red cent out of the germs. That's my own fault. I mean, I was a kid who was like, yeah, I'll manage the band. And then I did a lot of kick-ass stuff, unbeknownst to myself even. Mm -hmm. You know, it was just sort of like, well, yeah, we want to own that. Because nobody else does anyway. So 
fuck you, we're going to be published. You know, and I found out, oh, the songwriters do this. And, and Lorna, unfortunately, passed away without knowing that there was lots of money waiting for her in trust. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, she died destitute. That's so sad. Yeah. It is really sad. And it was, um, oh, God, this is so awful. I had heard... We became friends after the germs. We became closer friends. Um, and I visited with her and she lived with Gary Moss, who was also part of the Black Hearts um, in New York. And we used to spend a lot of time on the phone and we visit each other. And then she kind of dropped out of sight. She and Gary had broken up. He moved on to be a rock star with Joan and Lorna disappeared and nobody had seen her for years. And about maybe two years ago, there was a picture of her on Facebook and I wrote, oh God, I miss her. And I got a phone call from somebody who knew where she was and they said, she's in hospice, call her up and talk to her. She can't talk, but they'll hold the phone to her ear. And I called up the hospice and I could hear her breathing. And I just said, I love you. And I want you to know that so many people love you so much and have your whole life. And, you know, there was no response, but I, I think on, I hope on some level she heard that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, she and Belinda had come from Thousand Oaks together. They were in high school together. They'd come into Hollywood together. And I reached Belinda and I was like, you need to call the hospice. She's dying. And unfortunately, she called 10 minutes after. She, I think she died 10 minutes after I spoke in the phone and 10 minutes before Belinda could get hold of her. Oh, man. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And, you know, apparently she was living in really horrible circumstances with no money. And there was money for her because I had made sure that that publishing company had all of their names on it. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's so sad because, you know, obviously these people mean so much to people all over the world. And just the fact that, you know, they could be so alone. When they when they've provided so much to so many other people, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's really tragic. Um, I sorry, sorry. No, no, go on. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm sorry. No, you didn't. It's fine. Um, I guess the other thing that I was very curious about, and I think you'd be one of the few people that would know about this thing, is how did Ralph Records fit in to like the punk scene, like, was it at all connected or is it kind of a completely separate world like that? It's kind of like that radio free scene. That's also kind of happening a little bit. Well, Ralph records was, were the residents, these guys who, these mysterious guys who lived in San Francisco and they were kind of art school guys and they were older than us. And I only happen to know as much as I do about the Ralph scene, which I'm going to be purposely not disclosing about who they were or what their deal was. Cause that's part, I don't want to be. No, you got to keep that kayfabe alive. A hundred percent. 
the, I don't want to be the spoiler of the residents. Absolutely. Um, I, I respect that. And, you know, they played in eyeballs and, and tuxedos and they were art punks, you know, which doesn't make them punks at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a gimmick and their gimmick was the eyeball suits and the anonymity and um, they made really funny and fun electronic music. And my husband at the time was good friends with them. He was an artist and that's how I knew them. And they were darling dear people who were the most unpunk people you could ever imagine. <laughs> it's funny though, cause that Santa dog seven inch comes out what it's the end of 73, I think. And it's almost like, um, you know, like a, like a weird before punk kind of forms into whatever it is. It's like, that's kind of like an early weird fermentation of independent music. It feels like that's somehow connected to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in that first Petri dish. It definitely is. And, um, you know, again, it's like, who are the weirdest people, you know, Oh, those guys will just put them in that corner over there with the rest of the weirdos. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. Well, and it's amazing the stuff that comes out of that scene or that's connected to that scene. Like obviously, you know, the peewee playhouse stuff, um, the, the Simpsons stuff, like it, it, uh, Penn and Teller, like, it just feels like that's like another thing that also is like a, a light bulb, a light bulb to all these weird moths that are flying around in this world. Yeah. Um, the peewee and who was the other that you said that were Southern Cal, there was definitely a Southern California, Northern California divide though. Mm-hmm. Uh, and peewee, we were the connection between the residents and peewee. Okay. Uh, Gary, Gary and I were, cause Gary was friends with the residents. I was friends with them through Gary and then peewee happened and Peewee is a whole other thing. Um, Peewee was the luckiest man in show business because there was a woman who discovered him doing that act and had the idea for the show. And unfortunately, she got totally fucked out of her cut of the pie. Um, And that was my first indication of how brutal showbiz is. Mm. So, and Peewee would not have happened without her. Um, and it was kind of tragic. The rest of us got screwed too. We were supposed to be one big, happy, equally divided commune. But in the end, Peewee had lawyers secretly working away while the rest of us were busy creating that. Yeah. And I mean, it was really just the worst kind of show business, double um cross you can imagine uh, what was that woman's name who discovered him do you know donna kaufman okay yeah d-a-w-n-a-k-a-u-f-m-a-n oh yeah because she has been completely written out of that history and it, you know it seems like much like signing the germs it takes a special kind of genius to see something like that in its yeah. infancy and know it'll work and to know, she also knew the content. He had a five-minute thing act between the improvs at the Groundlings. That's all he was at that point. And she happened to catch him one night and came up with, she said, I want it to be 
one of those old time kids show, but for adults, and he's going to be the MC. I mean, she had fully the idea and she pulled him into it and she pulled us into it. And it was a group effort to write. And I mean, even that the original credit read written by the cast and that's been changed over the years without our permission. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the original thing was like, okay, we, this has been really, let's put on a show. We're all equal partners here. We're all doing this on speculation. And then when the time came, we all got fucked except Pee Wee. Well, that's and, terrible to hear that. Well, you know, I mean, if you watch that character for five minutes, it's not such a jump to guess <laughs> that that's who he is. <laughs> that character's a little asshole. So, you know, and I think that I feel like I'm happy with the life I've had. You know, I'm not embittered that I'm, I didn't become a multimillionaire that way. Um, I, it's, you know, I feel like I've had a really rich and varied life and I've done some good, I've done some bad. I'm human and, but I've never fucked anybody up in that way. I mean, I wouldn't even dream of it. Neither would most of us, judging from the reaction we had when the news was broken to us that we've been had. Um, well, I think you're one of the most fascinating people in the world. Like you've done like so many interesting things, like right until your current work that you're doing right now. Like it just, yeah, like you're like you, you know, it's just this sort of unbelievably rich life where you've touched all these different worlds and, you know, like, and kind of brought yourself to all these different things and, and just, you know, all these things that are so important, you know, from, from the germs to your impact on adventure time, you know, like, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. It's all really, you know, it's been a good ride. It's been a weird ride. It's been sad and happy and, but I can look back and go, okay, I've made a little mark. You know, I decided not to have kids probably when I was 12. Um, you know, and, and I've never really thought I made the wrong decision. I wasn't equipped, I think, emotionally to raise children. Um, but my students really have been my children in a way. And when Bill was killed, it was at the beginning of winter break. And three weeks later, I went back to work when school was in session. And those kids were amazing because I was a fucking mess. And they held space for me. And it felt like, okay, this is why I've done this. You know, this is, they're here for me. And it's amazing. So, yeah. It's it's um, it's been really interesting and weird. And my students, Nick Cave and Ram Das, are the people who've helped me get through this. Um, you know, this weirdness. So yeah, it's been um, interesting, and I hope that 
things get better because I think young people deserve a better world than the one that we have right this minute. Tying that back to punk rock, we fucking knew this was going to happen. Yeah. We tried telling everybody, but they wouldn't listen. Yeah, no, it feels like there have been lyrics about these moments written for decades now. And uh, it, it's sad that it's actually come to fruition. Like, I wish we weren't living in the world that was prophesized by all these punk vocalists. Right? It's, it's really kind of uncanny. Um, anyway, uh, I'm sure I've talked your ear off, but yeah, well, we can talk again anytime. But you should talk to Greg Turner um, and to Ron Spencer as well. Um, you know, they both had a lot to say and have done really interesting things. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to. I guess the, the final thing I'd love to talk to you about is this, you know, you mentioned renouncing punk in 1980, and it seems like there's a, a real shift that kind of happens around then um, where you kind of had a lot of the younger, the next generation of kids coming up from the beach communities and a lot more violence kind of coming into shows and uh, things starting to get a lot more aggressive. And, you know, it's just something that keeps coming up on the show time and time again. I just wondered what your thoughts were. Was that something you kind of witnessed happening around that time? Absolutely. And part of that was that in the first generation of punk, many of the people who were responsible for innovating were women. It was pretty equally divided. And the thing that came from the South Bay was testosterone fueled. Mm. It was male, it was misogynist. You know, and of course, now that I see everything through a lens of traumatized uh, acting out, it was kind of what we call toxic masculinity now, but that comes from somewhere. That comes from being treated in a way that traumatizes you. It's a defense mechanism. But at the time, it was something I didn't want to be around. It wasn't my Adams family, mordant humor. There was no sense of humor about it. it was the scariest thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we've seen, let me tie this in with what's happening now. Proud Boys, for instance, that group here in the United States of young men who pretty much want to fucking fight. That's what they do is not dissimilar. There's something that happens to some men when they're in their late teens and 20s. And it's also a form of acting out and it's recreational fighting. I had one of my students was the most amazing writer and he's a tattooist now on the East Coast. We're still in touch 25 years later. And he was obviously a totally hard case. And I'm like, so yo, what's your story? And he said, my dad's a homicide detective. My mom's a housewife. And I spent the years from when I was 13 till 18 in a boot camp in Utah. And I'm like, oh my God. And he said, well, Nicole, I like to fight for fun. Yeah. And that's what that is. That's what that was in 1980. That's what I think, you know, Proud Boys, 
there's a large component of that in that as well. Um, and that wretched political component in it, but it's about fighting and it's about trying to figure shit out, but by not figuring it out, by just acting out physically feels good, I guess. And when you're 115 pound, five foot four girl, the last thing you want to do is be caught in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, you know, and it was also punk was starting to get a little boring. You know, I guess I'd done the acting out I needed to do and move on to something else. Um, it's funny because you would never know it now. And when I tell my kids this, my kids at school, I was so shy. I mean, what you're seeing in the decline, a lot of people have written things online about, well, she was obviously high on heroin. It was sheer anxiety and shyness. I ne I've never done heroin. I've smoked it and I threw up a lot for three days. And that was the only time I've done any kind of heroin or opiate. But I was so shy from having the childhood I had where I was raised by a bully who delighted in telling me what a piece of shit I was. Mm. Yeah. You know, but it's amazing I can talk to you now. I can, because after a certain point, you just go, fuck it. Yeah. Um, and punk helped me move more towards that. Although even by the end of it, I was still like paralytically shy. Sorry, go on. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating. You brought up that proud boys comparison. Cause I'd never thought about that, but the parallels between the two are really interesting. When you look at both of them coming out of fairly affluent punk scenes, you know, like yeah. Gavin McGinnis, the guy who founded proud boys is from the Ottawa punk scene and played in a band, a punk band called anal Chinook. And it just, it feels like it's, it's very much, you know, like, a, certainly born at a privilege, but it's, it's, it's also this sort of, uh, you know, you know, white male trauma acting out, insecurity acting out. That's just very clear when you look at it. Yeah. Yeah. I look at those guys and I think, oh yeah, those little shits from the South Bay. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it has always seemed like a really bright and clear line from that to that. I didn't know that that guy had been a punk rock. Um, that Gavin McGinnis, I didn't know that. It's, it's interesting when you look at that Ottawa punk scene, because it's, once again, super small. But out mm -hmm. of that little scene, you've got Gavin McGinnis. You've got the people that would be the Arcade Fire. You've got people that would become Godspeed You Black Emperor. Uh, you know, like all these very disparate, obviously no one ideologically in line with where Gavin is, but at the same time, it's like very similar to looking at somewhere like the mask where you have this tiny room with no more than a few hundred people, yet all these people that wind up becoming for better or for worse agents of, of cultural change. It's, it's yeah. fascinating. It's, it's pretty weird, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So what should I be listening to? Oh, well, as you can tell from this conversation, I'm I'm listening to the bomb seven inch and, and the germs a lot, so I might not be the one to ask. Uh, but I, I think I think you know the stuff that's happening right now in in sort of like rap music or or people taking hardcore and punk to kind of different places. I, I find that really interesting. You know, like 
once again, like the stuff I mainly listen to for, for music enjoyment tends to be the stuff that we're talking about here. But I still find like, you know, the fact that you can look at an artist like Little Peep and just sort of the impact he's had on a whole new generation of young people and make direct connections. Or have you heard of this rapper Playboy Cardi? No, I haven't. He's he's a huge rapper, blown up, number one record on Billboard, you know, type thing. But he put a record this year and the cover is a slash ripoff. Uh-huh. It's it's a it's a flip of the Dave uh, Vanian cover of Slash, but it's his face and it's the same font and it even they put in the press release like this is our tribute to Slash fanzine. Um yeah. he has he has a bad religion tattoo too and he's you know a rapper who's who's you know upbringing was completely disconnected from what's happening in Los Angeles but heard about this stuff and it's just connected with him and he it's something that he references, you know, very openly you know it's not ripping this stuff off he's championing yeah, that's crazy um but you know in 1980 i think kk barrett who had been the drummer for the screamers opened a club called radio and africa bombada played i mean oh, he wow. was bringing rap people in that was in 1980 was the first time i'd ever heard of rap when i went to radio and saw those shows Mm-hmm. So there was definite like early cross pollination. Oh yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. The punks that I knew were always the first ones to know what you should be listening to and reading and stuff like that. I mean, there was such a huge degree of self education going on and sharing the information you know, we were really devouring culture um, with gusto. Um, The one, I don't know if you've heard of them, but there's a punk band I love here in LA. Well, I'm in New Mexico at the moment, hiding from COVID in LA. But in LA, there's a great, it's a gay metal punk band called The Cox. Okay, yeah, yeah, I've definitely heard of them. Absolutely. And I just love them. They're hilarious and fantastic. And, the singer, we were in a, the one band I was ever in was a country western, dirty country western band called Honk If You're Horny. And we put out one single, which I wrote the song, and I was the washboard player. And I, the song was all strung together bumper stickers, the lyrics were, and um, it was gas, grass, or ass, nobody rides for free. Don't you come a knocking if this fan is a rockin' because I'm with stupid and he's with me. And it's a whole song about female sexual appetites. But um, the the singer of the Cox was in that band for a while with us. And um, I really love their stuff. It makes me laugh. That's and awesome. Really good music. But other than that, I'm not really listening to much except podcasts like I like a lot of true murder I love that you interviewed um Georgia Hardstark um that is one of my favorite podcasts um my favorite murder oh it's amazing it's awesome and like yeah it's one of those things where you know finding out that she was into punk rock and finding out like it's it's one of those other things where like of course of course like I'm I'm almost I shouldn't be shocked at this point because anytime I tend to find something interesting, you know, lo and behold, there's someone involved in it that was a punk rock fan or involved in this music at some point, 
you know, and it's, it just, yeah. it never ceases to amaze me. You know, it's just, it seems like it's unending <laughs> in a way. It's pretty funny. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in hearing people's stories, mm -hmm. you know, and punk rock. I mean, it's, it, it actually, this is weird, but it's really loud for me now. <laughs> well, it's, Jonathan Richmond put started uh, refusing to play electric and put pillows on the drum set after a while. So I guess this is like a, a very uh, longstanding problem with punks after a while. It is. It is. You know, I had a brief romance with him, a very chaste brief romance. Whoa. And I have, um, this is like in 76. I met him when he was playing in Berkeley and I was living up there briefly and I have these great letters he wrote me in crayon. That's amazing. That's <laughs> incredible. <laughs> like I said, it was very chaste. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Nicole, this has been absolutely phenomenal. And anytime you feel like on this thing and being tortured with more questions, please know you're always welcome. Well, I'm finally sitting down and working on a book, um, which will probably be a few years in the making. I'm happy to. It jogs my memory about this stuff, too. It's great talking to you. It's really fun to know that there are young people out there who are interested in all of this, this thing that we thought was just us having fun. Well, thank you for calling me young, because I definitely... <laughs> I definitely appreciate that. So anytime, just let me know. It's It's been really, really fun. Thank you, Nicole, for coming on this show. And you, you're right there. Anytime Nicole wants to come back on this thing. Uh, she told me more stories off air after we finished. Like it just, it's just, there's just so many interesting stories. <laughs> things in her life you know just so many things we could talk about uh she's as she says writing a book and as i said off the top this is going to be a mandatory read sight unseen holy what what an incredible life thank you again nicole for coming on the show uh well next week for something completely different but once again an episode i'm very excited for you to hear next week on the show or later on no no it's gonna be next week it's gonna be after yeah it's gonna be next week on the show but but shortly here after the show steve-o from jackass will be on turned out of punk and this is oh, oh, oh man are you gonna be surprised with some of the bands he talks about on this thing this is this is a great great episode i uh, you know, I, I say to him right here on, you know, on the episode, and I talked about this too with Danger Aaron from Jackass when he was on the show as well. He is one of the most influential artists of the last, you know, 25 years and arguably one of the most influential performance artists ever, ever. And the bands we talk about are so sick. Anyway, you will hear this on uh, the upcoming episode. Well, I can't wait. There's so many great stories on that one. Oh my gosh, I'm excited for you to hear it. All right, that is it. Uh, thank you again for listening. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids and we need to help trans people protect themselves. And definitely we need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people. Um, go out there, get involved, do something. 
uh, sign petitions, uh, use, lend your support in demonstrations, uh, be, be involved. Like, look what's going on in the world. Like outside of even your own backyard, there's so much going on. Obviously it can be overwhelming, but, but something's better than nothing. So to try and do something, try and try and, I don't know. There's a lot going on. <laughs> there's a lot going on, but at the end of the day, these aren't human these are these aren't political issues. These are human rights issues. These are issues just about people just wanting to be free and, and live their lives and stuff. So, fuck fascism, um, smash Nazis, and yeah, just just you know, uh, do something creative for yourself. Try and you know maybe make a piece of art, maybe share it with the world, maybe don't. Start a podcast. You don't have to be special to do one of these. Trust me on that one. Uh, you know, but it helps. It helps you. I mean, you know, it helps your mental health sometimes. You know, creating something. I feel better once I put something out in the world. Uh, you could also um, uh, just try meditating. I've been trying to meditate, and it really does help. I've Holy God, does it help. Uh, I meditate now uh, a lot, and it really, I find it's it's benefiting me. I should probably meditate more, you know? It might not work for you. I didn't believe it was going to work for me, but it did. So what's the worst that happens? You know, it doesn't work for you. You're no worse off than you were coming into it. Uh, investigate other alternative medical treatments for mental health issues. You know, I'm not saying you have to do any of the stuff that Nicole and I were talking about in this episode, but you owe it to yourself to see what's out there. If what you're currently doing is not working for you. So treat your mental health because you owe it to the people around you to do that. So I don't know that was a weird way of saying it, but I felt like I needed to throw that in there this week. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. And, and it helps, you know, like it, it really can give someone a new lease on life. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. Um, and that's it. I think, I think I've, so I think I'll, I think I've done everything I need to say. Listen to oil and flowers. If you want to hear Buddha blaze and myself talk about cannabis, check out oil and flowers. We talk about alternative medicines on that thing too. Um, Nicole's got to come on that. That'd be great. That'd be a great guest. I don't know. Mention a Buddha. All right. That's it. Stay safe. I'll see you next episode. I love you. Bye. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. From issuance, please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C.